according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. This morning, we are once again in the book of Isaiah. And this week, we move on to Isaiah chapter 32. Isaiah chapter 32. We have 20 verses to cover. More than twice the length of last week, we had nine verses in chapter 31. I think it'll be easier, actually, this week to cover a lot of these. We're going to get a little political this morning, because chapter 32 gets a little political this morning. So we'll make sure that we handle it biblically, that we are humble before the Lord to understand what He is revealing in the rebuke upon Judah. And you say, well, 3,000 years ago or 2,000 years ago, Judah was under judgment, and he was warning them, why does that apply to us today? Because we're doing the same thing. We're doing the same thing. And he is no less displeased with us than he was with them. And we better learn. We better learn what it was that brought about the displeasure of the Lord, the hand of God's judgment upon the Jewish nation. In fact, we better learn it doubly quick, because we are not the covenant nation of Israel. We are not the chosen people. We are a Gentile nation subject to the cursing of God. And uh, if we are not pleasing in his sight, if he dealt with his chosen people the way that he did, how much more will he do with us? All right? The application gets that much more severe. Behold, a king will reign righteously and princes will rule justly. Each will be like a refuge from the wind and a shelter from the storm. Like streams of water in a dry country, like the shade of a huge rock in a parched land. Oh, I love this. A king will reign righteously and princes will rule justly. Are you waiting for perfect government? We all are. And we won't have it until Jesus Christ returns at second advent. All right? If we think that we can make it happen ourselves, if we think that we can usher it in at the ballot box, uh, we need to reread this passage and we need to orient ourselves to the plan of God for the coming kingdom of God on earth. When the perfect government arrives, uh, there will be uh, humility required to receive it, to enter into it, to accept it, and uh, many won't accept it. And that's called tribulation. And that's what we have coming up. So this is our material today. Before we begin, let's take a moment for silent prayer to assure that each one of us is humble before the word of God, that we humble ourselves before the authority of his doctrine. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we come before your throne of grace this morning, thankful for your faithfulness. Morning by morning, Father, new mercies we see. Great is thy faithfulness. Father, we thank you. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for the, uh, if it wasn't for your grace, Father, we wouldn't be here today. Who are we? That we should be invited into your counsel, that, that you should explain your thinking to us. And yet that's what you're doing, Father. We have the mind of Christ. You have made yourself known. I thank you, Father, for the Hebrew canon, for the Greek canon, for the complete canon of Scripture that we have in this present church age. I thank you, Father, for the command you place us under, that we study to show ourselves approved before you, workmen needing not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. And I pray this morning that we would rightly divide the word of truth, that we would understand the message from Isaiah 32. We would understand the immediate context as it was given to Judah, and we might understand the long-term application, how we are to live this truth today. So, Father, open the eyes of our understanding, and I do thank you. In Jesus Christ's name, amen. Perfect government is on the way. Hallelujah. All right. It is on the way, and I, for one, am ready. I can't wait till it gets here. Uh, I wish it was already here in some respects. I woke up this morning disappointed that I was still on earth, that the trumpet had not sounded during the night. And this is uh, the concept of imminency that we try to foster. We try to build a biblical framework for imminency, knowing that the church age could end today, that there are no prophecies that must be fulfilled before the current dispensation of the church runs its course. That presently, Jesus Christ, the Father is preparing a bride for His Son, our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. And when the bride is complete, 
then the father will say, all right, son, go get your bride. And the Lord himself will descend with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Thus we shall always be with the Lord. Now this is called the rapture of the church, our blessed hope, and it can happen today. It can happen before the end of this message. It can happen before the end of this illustration. And that's the kind of imminency that we want to live under. Day by day, moment by moment, the sense of urgency, it prompts within us a a sense of uh, obligation, of godliness, of urgency, that uh, there's not a lot of time left when it comes right down to it. Until then, of course, we have the earthly rulers that we have. We live in the fallen world we live in. We have uh, the fools and the scoundrels, or the rogues. I like it. Uh, In the New American Standard, we have a rogue in verse 5 and in verse 7. If you're reading the Holman this morning, you've got a scoundrel in uh, verse 5 and verse 7. There's other terms for it if you're reading a King James or New King James. We'll talk about these rogues, these scoundrels, and the fools that keep voting for them. And why it is that the rogues need the fools, and the fools need the rogues, and why it is that they are what they are, and why they defy the will of God the way that they do. All right? And I'm not going to name names, or I'm not going to, I don't have to. When you understand the doctrine, you understand the issues. All right? And you make your own application. Let's get through verses 1 through 4 and cover this first portion. I've already read verse 1. A king, let me give you a clue, that's Jesus Christ, okay? A king will reign righteously, and princes will rule justly. Each will be like a refuge from the wind and a shelter from the storm, like streams of water in a dry country, like the shade of a huge rock in a parched land. Then the eyes of those who see will not be blinded, and the ears of those who hear will listen. The mighty of the hasty, or I'm sorry, the mind of the hasty will discern the truth, and the tongue of the stammerers will hasten to speak clearly. No longer will the fool be called. Oh, let me stop there. Stop with verse four. The mind of the hasty and the tongue of the stammerers. These are some of the benefits and blessings that we have when not only do we have perfect government on this earth, but we actually have a population that makes the Word of God its priority. We have believers that are focused on learning the Word of God, living the Word of God. That becomes not only a matter of personal faith, but a matter of public duty in the theocracy that will be the Davidic throne of Jesus Christ in Jerusalem. So we'll discuss that as well. First of all, this king is Jesus Christ. And I wish we could spend the time. This is our chapter by chapter summary. We're not exegeting. We're not giving you the Hebrew, but there are word plays in this chapter that you lose if all you do is read the English text. The Malak, the Melech is the king, and the Melech will Malak in righteousness. Okay? The king will reign. And what's unfortunate is in the English we've got those two different words. We've got king and we've got reign. And what we lose in that translation is we lose the fact that king is a noun and reign is a verb, but it's the same term in Hebrew, all right? It's the cognate form of the noun and the verb. It's melech and malach. It comes from the same root. It's the same Hebrew root, all right? So the melech will malach. And the prince, by the way, does the same thing. The sar will sarar. So there's a double word play in this passage. As the melech malachs, and as the sarar, uh, as the sar sarars, okay, and you lose that in the in the English text, the melech will malach in righteousness, and this is where we start to identify that words mean things, that verbs actually should communicate a function, what it is that it does, okay, and sometimes we lose that in just the usage of the term. We forget uh, in all our English words that end in er, right? Farmer, someone who farms. Pastor, someone who pastors, right? Father, fathers. We have, we have terms like that. A king should king. That is, he should function as the steward under God's leadership to shepherd an earthly people. A king is not just a title. I think a lot of people have titles. They don't do anything with those titles. Uh, you probably worked for a boss like that. Got a fancy nameplate on the door, a big placard on his desk. Got a glorious title that ought to mean something. 
And he doesn't seem to do much with that title. All right? But the king will king. He's not just a figurehead that has a title and doesn't actually king. That was David's big downfall when the time came when kings would lead their nations into war and David's not being a king. David's being the, the partier and getting into fornication trouble and all the other stuff King David was doing there in Second Samuel chapter 11. But this Melech is going to Moloch in righteousness. Not only do we have this described in Isaiah 32, but we have the powerful psalm of the king in Psalm 45, verses 6 through 9. I may grab a little bit beyond that as well, but Psalm 45, verses 6 through 9, the psalm of the king. And it says, uh, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. See, the Jewish people should have realized that when their Christ arrived, when their king arrived, it would be God himself. It would be God in the flesh. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Nowadays, I think politicians do just the reverse. They promote the wickedness. And they only, they give righteousness kind of, uh, you know, lip service until they get caught. All right. Not so with Jesus Christ. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God has anointed you with the oil of joy above your fellows. And so the psalmist is speaking to God about his God. And we've got a, a powerful statement here about the Son of God, Jesus Christ. We, we know Trinity. We know how this works. We know that this is Jesus Christ in his humanity. He is the God-man. He is himself God. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. But he's being addressed here. God, your God, has anointed you. Remember, the anointing is for prophets, priests, and kings. And we have the fulfillment in Jesus Christ, the prophet, priest, and king. He has anointed you with the oil of joy above your fellows. All your garments are fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia. Out of the ivory palaces, stringed instruments have made you glad. King's daughters are among your noble ladies. At your right hand stands the queen in gold from Ophir. All right, now if you know the New Testament, you know we're the queen. We are the bride of Christ. We are pictured here in this psalm, and yet it's still mystery, unrevealed, unfolded in the Old Testament. There's additional things here as well <coughs> that we should pay attention to. Uh, we will return to this actually uh, in verse 16. If, if I grab it now, we can save ourselves from flipping later. In place of your fathers will be your sons. You shall make them princes in all the earth. We gotta we gotta know prophetically who are the princes. Who are the princes? Because Jesus Christ has a mystical bride that is the body of Christ as the bride. Most kings have a human woman that gives birth to children they call princes. All right. And then so you've got a king and the princes that are, you know, training to be king someday. But we have Jesus Christ, the king, who is going to be king forever and live forever. So why does he need princes? Who are these princes? Okay. So we're going to deal with here in this chapter. In place of your fathers will be your sons, and you shall make them princes in all the earth. And I will cause your name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore, the peoples will give you thanks forever and ever. Just keep that in your mind as we proceed, not only in Psalm, not in, in, in Isaiah this morning, but in some future studies we have coming up. Because after the, the new heavens and new earth are created, in the fullness of times, we're going to have a thousand generations of those who love Jesus Christ. And this is the, the glory of the stewardship after the millennium that we're going to be learning about in some upcoming classes. All right, in addition to this, we've got Jeremiah 23. Here's a preview of where we're going to be is when we finish our 66 chapters of Isaiah in roughly 34 weeks from now. We're going to start uh, Jeremiah, 52 weeks of Jeremiah. And so Jeremiah 23 speaks of this as well. Verses uh, 5 and 6. <clears throat> Behold, and this has to do with their regathering as he brings them from the land where they've been scattered. Woe to the shepherds. It's a message begins with woe in Jeremiah 23. Woe to the shepherds who are destroying and scattering the sheep of my pasture, declares the Lord. And he's going to take care of them and he's going to provide his shepherd, Jesus Christ. 
I myself will gather the remnant of my flock out of all the countries where I've driven them and bring them back to their pasture. They will be fruitful and multiply. Remember, Israel has a future. I will also raise up shepherds over them and they will tend them and they will not be afraid any longer nor be terrified nor will any be missing declares the Lord. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord. Unless you subscribe to replacement theology, this is still future for the nation of Israel. Days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he will reign as king and act wisely and do justice and righteousness, notice, in the land. Don't spiritualize this. Don't put Jesus up in heaven and then spiritualize, allegorize all of the earthly promises to the Davidic throne. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called the Lord, our righteousness. He will reign as Yahweh Tzidkenu. I believe his full legal title will be um, Emmanuel Yahweh Tzidkenu. That he has not yet uh, embraced the Emmanuel name. He was Jesus in his first advent. But he will reign as King Emmanuel Yahweh Tzidkenu as he sits on the throne in Jerusalem. And therefore, behold, verse 7, days are coming, declares the Lord, when they will no longer say, as the Lord lives who brought us up from the land of Egypt. They're not going to say that anymore. You realize for all these thousands and thousands of years, Israel identifies with their God who brought them up out of the land of Egypt. They identify with Moses who brought them out of the land of Egypt. Moses who gave them the law. But in the second advent, they'll no longer say, our God who brought us up from the land of Egypt. It's going to be our Lord and our Savior Jesus Christ who brought us out of all the countries across the earth. As the Lord lives, who brought up and led back the descendants of the house of Israel from the Northland and from all the countries where I have driven them, then they will live on their own soil. All right, so those days are coming. The righteous king will be the ultimate Melchizedek. Do you ever study Melchizedek? He will be the ultimate Melchizedek, king of righteousness, king of peace. And so I would encourage you to read up on Melchizedek during the life of Abraham back in Genesis chapter 14, verses 18 through 20. And you're going to see he is a shadow. He is a type of Christ. We see that as an Old Testament illustration, much of what he does in that chapter teaches us doctrine that relates to Christ, and specifically, I believe, Christ in his second advent, Christ in his millennial kingdom glory. And Abraham gave tithes to Melchizedek. That's important. becomes very important in the theology of Hebrews chapter 5 and Hebrews chapter 7. Now, I'm almost hesitant to take some time to do this, but let's do this because it's worthwhile Genesis 14, and then Hebrews. We'll be back in Isaiah before you know it. But remember, Scripture has to agree with Scripture. We have to correlate what we're studying. Otherwise, I could just sit here and pontificate on a few verses, and, and what have I done at that point? All right, We've got to compare Scripture to Scripture and let the Word of God interpret itself. This King of Righteousness that Isaiah 32 speaks of. Well, he's foreshadowed in Melchizedek. That the milk, by the way, in Melchizedek, is the same melek, malak, the same verb that we're looking at in Isaiah 32, where the melek will malak in righteousness, in zedek. Okay? So if you have melek and zedek, a king and righteousness, what do you got? You got Melchizedek. And boy, weren't his parents lucky that they named him that. All right. So in Genesis 14, verses 18 through 20, and and Abraham is coming back. Abraham and his household uh, soldiers defeated five kings to rescue Lot in uh, this chapter. It's an amazing story. And after his return from the defeat of Kedarlaomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out. And then verse 18, Melchizedek, the king of Salem. Now Salem means peace, and the longer form of it is Jerusalem. This is an older name for Jerusalem is king of Salem or king of peace. He's a king of righteousness and he's a king of peace. So guess who he's a picture of, right? This is a foreshadowing of Jesus Christ. He came out and he brought bread and wine. This is our first communion long before the church was ever unveiled. What a beautiful thing. Brought out bread and wine and he was priest of God most high. And he blessed him and said, now he's going to prophesy. So he's a king, he's a priest, and he's a prophet 
Blessed be Abram of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And he, Abram, gave him, Melchizedek, a tenth of all. And the king of Sodom tries to give some rewards too, and Abraham's not taking it. All right? It's a lot of doctrine in this chapter. And it gets unfolded for us in Hebrews. So don't take my word for it. Let's look to the New Testament now, the book of Hebrews. Hebrews 5 and Hebrews 7. Hebrews 5, verses 6 through 11. Hebrews 5, verses 6 through 11. Interestingly enough, as he says in another passage, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. This is quoting from Psalm 110. Now notice, in the days of his flesh, this is Jesus now, he offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his piety. This is this passage is illustrating the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. Jesus Christ, in true deity, undiminished deity, in true humanity, came to this earth and suffered. And he learned obedience through the things that he suffered. The next time I want to have a pity party and say, why do I have to go through this? I shouldn't have to go through this. Wait a minute. Who do I think I am? If Jesus had to go through this, why do I think I'm entitled to not suffer? I should be learning what I should be learning just as he learned what he learned. God uses suffering to teach us what we can't learn any other way. And having been made perfect, I love that, because he was already perfect, but he was made more perfect. All right? in the infinite completion of the Father's program. Having been made perfect, He became to all those who obey Him the source of eternal salvation. Because of what Jesus Christ accomplished on the cross, we are saved to the uttermost. Now, being designated by God as a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Do you see why this is important? Oh, this is vital. And it's heartbreaking how few Christians give two hoots about any of this. And maybe it shouldn't be, because look at verse 11. Concerning Melchizedek, we have much to say, and it's hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. (laughs) All right? Even back in the first century, Barnabas, or whoever the author of Hebrews was, says, I would love to keep preaching on Melchizedek, but you guys can't deal with it right now. Isn't that something? When you start studying Melchizedek, the king of righteousness, the king of, pre- uh, the king of peace, the prophet, priest, and king from Genesis 14, the one to whom Abraham paid tithes, you'll start to understand a Christology like you've never understood it before, looking forward to the millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ. But you better have your thinking cap on because it's not an easy class. All right? Over to chapter 7. This Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham as he was returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham appointed a tenth part of all the spoils. He was first of all, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. Oh, look at that. It's not just your goofy pastor making a big deal out of the the term Melech and Zedek and why it is significant that Melchizedek is the foreshadowing of Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit likewise inspired it in the text of Hebrews. First of all, by the translation of his name, King of Righteousness. Then also, King of Salem. You ever tell a Jewish person Shalom? All right. Salem, which is King of Peace. Without father, without mother, without genealogy. Okay. Now, the, the, the person had all that, but the text never records it. That's the point. Genesis 14 simply introduces Melchizedek, does not give his genealogy, does not give his background, does not give any of that, just introduces him as a prophet, priest, and king, so that in the text he may be presented as a type of Christ. Having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, he remains a priest perpetually. Now observe how great this man was, to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of all the choicest spoils. I can't prove it, but there's a long-standing Jewish tradition 
that Melchizedek was Shem. That Melchizedek was the blessed son of Noah in the generations after the flood. And uh, the, uh, the most spiritually, because Noah's dead by now, the most spiritually mature believer on the planet, even beyond Job in, uh, in uh, that respect. Don't know that I can claim that, but that's the legend. So observe how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the choicest spoils. You know, here's the Jews. They're giving a tithe to Levi. And the point being made in this chapter is Levi was in the loins of Abraham when Abraham gave a tithe to Melchizedek. So what's the greater priesthood? The Levitical priesthood or the Melchizedek priesthood? All right. A lot of doctrine here in these chapters. Back to Isaiah. Not only will the Melech, Malach in righteousness, but the Sars or the Sarim, sorry about that. The plural of Sar is not Sars. It's Sarim. The Sarim will Sarar with justice. The Sarim will Sarar with justice. And again, it's the play on words that you miss in the English because the text renders the Sarim as princes, sadly enough. Well, interestingly enough, because there's four or five different Hebrew words that all end up being prince in the, in the English. Sarim will Sarar justly. And just like with the play on words where the Melech will Malak, the Sarim will Sarar justly. And what does it mean to Sarar? And who are these Sar princes? When we think of Sar like Caesar or Tsar or other Sar terminology that we might have in subsequent history. These Sar princes. Now I believe, we're going to talk about some, other, some things here that we can't get into today, but I believe these Sar princes are likely the tribal Sarim who rule under Jesus Christ's leadership. And they were referenced already, the Sarim, in Psalm 45, verses 16 and 17. There, were, there have to be tribal leaders, and the leaders of those tribes were called Sarim, tribal princes, the prince of, of uh, Judah, the prince of Benjamin, the prince of Zebulun, the prince of Naphtali, 12 of them, right? Different tribal princes. Remember, Israel is a confederation of 12 tribes. Those tribes are broken down into clans and broken down into families. A little bit alien for us because America isn't built that way. And thank God we're not tribal, all right? Because tribalism is another problem. These Sar princes are likely the tribal serene who will rule under Jesus Christ's leadership. They're going to be preserved throughout the tribulation. In fact, every tribe except Dan is given a, a, a seal. And 144,000 Jewish evangelists are going to be preserved through the tribulation. Just as there were tribal uh, princes that were spies in the wilderness that went in to spy out the land. These Sar princes are going to rule under Jesus Christ's leadership. And I take them to be the mortal humans that survived the tribulation that will lead the nation of Israel during the millennial kingdom. There will also, however be resurrected princes. And here's something fun to think about. There will be resurrected princes in the millennium, including David. But they're not called Sarim. They're called Nasi, Nasi'im. All right? It's a different Hebrew vocabulary, and that's why you've got to be a little bit careful. There's different Hebrew terms for prince. Like there's, a, there's 27 different Hebrew nouns they just translated owl in the, in the King James. And, and you just, you know... In 1611, the poor translators, bless their heart, they just came to some Hebrew animal that seemed like a bird, so they called it an owl. And you end up with a whole bunch of owls in the, in the King James that probably aren't all owls, and we have to do better research on the vocabulary. Same thing with prince. We're talking about a, a sar or a nasi, because there's a difference between a sar and a nasi. I believe the nasi princes are going to include David a resurrected, glorified King David. But he can't be king again because Jesus is on the throne. See, you understand resurrection throws a monkey wrench into your line of succession for a, for a, a, a kingdom, right? We don't, something else, we have a, you know, a president, we elect a new one, we elect a new one, we elect a new one. If, if, if George Washington came back alive again, we wouldn't just say, well, hey, you should be president again because you're not dead anymore. Well, we have, we have elections and we have, we have uh, it's a different situation here, but understand under a monarchy, you know, is, is Queen Elizabeth still queen in England if, if somehow her predecessor comes back to life? 
Because in a, in, a, in, a in a hereditary monarchy, you get to be king until you die. Or abdicate and give it, you know, I'm going to marry an American divorcee or whatever, you can abdicate. But I'm rambling now. All right. But now understand, King David is going to be resurrected on this earth. What does he do during the millennial kingdom? Well, according to Ezekiel 34 and Ezekiel 37, he's actually going to reign as a nasi, as a prince. Because obviously, Jesus Christ, the God-man, the greater son of David, is seated on the throne of David. So Ezekiel 34, 24, it says, and this is fun to think about, uh, in verse 23, I will set over them one shepherd, my servant David, that's the greater son of David, fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. He will feed them. He will feed them himself and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God. And my servant David will be prince among them. Nasi, I, Yahweh, the Lord, have spoken. Likewise, chapter 37. I actually think it's going to be every king, including David, Solomon, Rehoboam, Hezekiah, all the righteous kings of the line of David. From Solomon down through Zedekiah. They're all going to be back alive on this earth. <laughs> what are they expected to do? Well, what a better selection of princes than former kings who can, in the resurrected glory, they can serve the function. Because Jesus isn't going to be having babies. All right? Now, he's going to be king on David's throne, but he's not going to have physical earthly offspring to grow up as princes and to sit on thrones and. But he's got former kings like David and Solomon and Rehoboam and Hezekiah and Josiah, good King Josiah, and all the righteous kings of the line of Judah. All simultaneously resurrected and ruling as Nasi princes. Ezekiel 45, I think, addresses this. Verses 8 and 9, pretty close to... Uh, ooh, and Psalm 72. There's a psalm. Solomon wrote that psalm. Psalm 72, verses 1 through 4. Give the king your judgments, O God, and your righteousness to the king's son. May he judge your people with righteousness and you're afflicted with justice. That's going to happen in the millennial kingdom, right? Let the mountains bring peace to the people and the hills in righteousness. May he vindicate the afflicted of the people, save the children of the needy, and crush the oppressor. Here is where government truly will be providing for the citizenry. Anyway, there's more to say on that. Perfect government is on the way, all right? And until Jesus Christ reigns, what do we have in the meantime? We've got flawed government. We've got sinners, all right? We've got sinners is what we've got. And so we try to mitigate the, the impact of that. We try to limit the damage on that. We, our founding fathers established a separation of powers so that sinners can only do so much damage and then other sinners can, can kind of hold it off. Fools and rogues will exist in the millennium, but they won't be promoted into positions of authority like they are today. <laughs> All right? <laughs> Fools and rogues will exist in the millennium. Why is it that the people that tend to get promoted in the military or they tend to advance in the workplace or they tend to rise to middle and upper management? Fools and rogues, they will exist in the millennium. Remember, we still have sinners until the new heavens and new earth. We still have sinners and death throughout the millennial reign. Fools and rogues will exist in the millennium, but they won't be promoted into positions of authority. Jesus Christ will remove them. He actually will execute rebellion morning by morning in Jerusalem. And there is so much work we could do on this. If we ever do teach this chapter on a more detailed, exegetical basis, we've got to work on this. And of course, for fools, we got Proverbs that teaches the way of wisdom and the way of the fool. We know about the fools in so many respects. But what about the rogue, the scoundrel? No longer will the fool be called noble. You know, and here's this fool, but he's got a reputation. He's got, uh, uh, you know, uh, the expectation, oh, he's this smart guy. Oh, he's, oh, yeah. All right. He's called something that is the polar opposite of what he really is. But when you have the reputation, uh, okay. And no one wants to speak up and say the emperor has no clothes. So they all just play along with it. 
no longer. Okay? Or the rogue, no longer will the rogue be spoken of as generous. Okay, now here's the scoundrel, here's the rogue, and he works hand in hand with the fool. And he's spoken of as generous, but he's not generous, just as the, the, the fool is not noble. He has the legend of being noble. And what does it mean to be noble anyway? That's why we've got to take some work, but you've got to understand what is nobility? What does it mean to be noble-minded? We're commanded to be noble-minded. Like the Bereans, noble-minded, search the Scripture, see if these things are so. Noble-minded, meaning we think, we take adult responsibility. Noble-minded, meaning we understand our place. Noble-minded, meaning we are truly generous. To be noble means to be generous. And it's generous voluntarily. When you really do the vocabulary on this, you find this is the term for the free will offering, the votive offering in the Old Testament. This is the offering you give because you want to, not because you're commanded to, not because you have to give your tithe or your 10%. It is the volitional free will offering. This is the biblical's, the, the Bible's model for charity, for generosity. This is people who want to be generous, who choose to bless other people, not who take money from other people to give money to other people and create a mythology that we really care while we bribe you with other people's money and while we build a reputation of being noble and generous and caring and sharing and loving. Well, are we really? What is it costing us to buy your vote? All right? And so the rogue is spoken of as generous, but you'll notice He's not. Not at all. For a fool speaks nonsense and his heart inclines toward wickedness. He's bought into a world philosophy that just, it's, it's, it's up, black is white, up is down, left, you know, it's like bizarre world. It's like, what is this? It's like, and we're the ones that are called morons because we believe in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. to practice ungodliness and to speak error against the Lord, to keep the hungry person unsatisfied and to withhold drink from the thirsty. You know, are you really interested in, in ending poverty? Or do you need those poor people? Are you really interested in ending the social injustice? Or do you need the social injustice to keep the rabble rousing up about it? Do you really care about starving people? As for the rogue, or the scoundrel, I like the Holman scoundrel. His weapons are evil. He devises wicked schemes to destroy the afflicted with slander. And yet, everything is just the opposite. The fool thinks he's his best friend. The fool thinks, this guy's on my side. This guy is trying to help me. This guy wants my life to be better. And his whole scheme is to tear you down. He devises wicked schemes to destroy the afflicted with slander, even though the needy one speaks what is right. But the noble man devises noble plans. And by noble plans, he stands. The noble plans are the generosity the voluntary gifts, the voluntary bequests, in a tradition that used to exist, in, in true benevolence, in true um, a sense of, of uh, giving to the generations that follow. Think of all the, think of all the hospitals that started as, as charities, right? Why do we have all these? And we still have them today. They have labels and names, but they're not really what they used to be. Okay, but the the so and so Methodist hospital, the so and so Presbyterian hospital, the so and so Baptist hospital, and all these were voluntary, charitable medical institutions. And I think we've lost this. I think um, secular the secular worldview has stepped in, and has so heavily taxed the population that it actually damages the capacity for charitable, true charitable church giving. 
Anyway, the idea of nobility is the idea of generosity. It even carried forth into French and English aristocracy, even French aristocracy. The French understood this. And they invented the con, they, they coined the expression of, somebody else say it, please. I don't want to say it. Noblesse oblige. Well, there I said it. All right. But it is the sense of obligation and duty and place that the aristocracy understood that we have a, a, a duty to be generous as God has been generous with us. But it was a gracious, generous, not a taxation and not a, uh, not a forced circumstance. Remember, forced taxation is not grace giving. All right. So the noble man devises noble plans, and by noble plans he stands. Fools and rogues. Here's the short definition. Fools and rogues are the dependent class and the dependent class manipulators who operate in a pathetic pseudo-generosity. Fools and rogues are dependent class and dependent class manipulators who operate in a pathetic pseudo-generosity. Nothing generous about it. And it's not even designed to solve the problem. It actually is designed to perpetuate the problem. Generation after generation after generation after generation. You would think uh, after all the trillions of dollars, the war on poverty would be over by now, right? The Great Society, whatever. I mean, here we are, Austin, Texas, LBJ Library right down the street. Why are there still poor people? Well, Jesus said, the poor you will have with you always. We need to have a biblical orientation to how we conduct ourselves. We want to promote biblical generosity. We want to promote grace giving. You cannot beat grace. Great, you can never beat grace. Not with legalism. Not with law. <laughs> That's why I like that little box at the back of the room. Because you can't beat grace. We don't pass a plate. We don't get people guilty. We don't force money or any of that. There's just a little grace box at the back of the room. It's minding its own little grace box business between you and the box on your way out the door, okay? Between you and the Lord on the way out the door. And I love it. And I like to tell people, that's the, that's the box this church came in, okay? This church building came in that little box right there because grace is grace and God provides through grace. Noble-slash-generous character will produce noble-slash-generous endeavors. If it's truly noble, you don't have to be forced into it under penalty of prison. You don't need to have a mandatory law that's passed that makes you do it. If it's truly noble, if it's truly generous, remember, God loves the cheerful giver, not grudgingly or under compulsion, but as a man has purposed in his heart, God loves the cheerful giver, the graciously oriented believer. Remember, that's the only thing that imitates Christ. That's the only thing that glorifies Christ and pleases the Father. When you, as an imitator of Christ, give freely because you want to. Jesus Christ came to the cross and gave himself freely because he wanted to. We, we either reflect the giving of Jesus Christ in our own giving or we don't, in which case we come under God the Father's displeasure. All right, well, there's more on that. And like I say, if you want, maybe someday the Lord will let us do a complete study on this, on the fool and the rogue. But there it is. All right, verses 9 and following. Rise up, you women who are at ease and hear my voice. Give ear to my word, you complacent daughters. Uh-oh, we're preaching about the women again. Here we go. You know what happens now. Within a year and a few days you will be troubled, O complacent daughters, for the vintage is ended and the fruit gathering will not come. Tremble, you women who are at ease. Be troubled, you complacent daughters. Strip, undress, and put sackcloth on your waist. Beat your breasts for the pleasant field, for the fruitful vine, for the land of my people in which thorns and briars shall come up. Yea, for all the joyful houses and for the jubilant city. Because, 
You know, what's, what's the reason for all this? You complacent, grumbling women. Okay? The point is, is there's the capacity is not putting things, or the, the women are not putting into context why these things are happening. All right? Where are the men? Well, they're dead. Okay? They've died in battle, defending the women. And uh, Hill, uh, because the palace has been abandoned, the population city, populated city forsaken. Hill and Watchtower become caves forever. A delight for wild donkeys, a pasture for flocks. Okay, until the Spirit is poured out from us. Okay, so there is promise of the Spirit. We have here tribulation followed by millennium in this passage. And in the break is between verse 14 and verse 15. And the answer is the coming of the promise of the Holy Spirit. The answer is the, the promises made to Abraham. This connects real well with where we were last hour in Galatians chapter 3. The promise of the Spirit poured forth. The coming of the kingdom of Jesus Christ on this earth. But in the meantime, there's war, there's death, there's destruction. The men are dead in battle. And the women are grumbling that the wine has run out. Wow, okay. It's like complaining today because of whatever. The, 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 the best buy, my favorite iPod was out of stock and I had to wait two days for the next shipment to get delivered. Wow. Okay. First world problems, right? Is that what we talk about? In the, and, and, you know, and, and, and it just it, ah, bugs me and it bugs me and it bugs me. I, don't, you know, I shouldn't let it bug me. I should just turn the TV off and confess and go read a Bible somewhere. But, you know, the, the, these, these, these militant, militant feminists complaining about how rough they've got it. Well, meanwhile, 300 Nigerian girls have been abducted and sold into sex slavery. I mean, Hello? We've got Christian churches being burned down. We've got beheading going on on the beaches of Libya. I mean, why are we not in fervent prayer for our brothers and sisters around this world and what they're dealing with? Anyway. All right, enough of that. Um, but this is similar to what we've already seen, so I would encourage you to review chapter uh, 3 in the notes of what we looked at some 29 weeks ago. Um, 30 weeks ago, whenever it was. I've had a couple of weeks off. Um, Like chapter 3, it's the women of Judah here who are rebuked. There's a major theme in chapter 3, and so if you've got those notes, you can go review those notes. You can get on the website anytime and download the MP3. It's just sitting there minding its own MP3 business. All right? Their complacent life at ease has come to an end. Isaiah 32, verses 9 through 14. Compare it back to chapter 3, verses 16 through 26. Understand that the promised time of justice, righteousness, and peace will only come with the promised Holy Spirit. It's the pouring forth of the Holy Spirit that signifies that their warfare is done. It signifies that they have rest from their enemies on every side. It signifies that they have that peace. Today they can sign treaties with any Muslim they want to sign a treaty with. It's as good as it's not even as good as the paper it's printed on. All right. The promised time of justice, righteousness, and peace will only come with a promised Holy Spirit outpouring. And that's what we see here in verses fifteen through twenty. Until the Spirit is poured out upon us from on high. The wilderness becomes a fertile field. The fertile field is considered as a forest. Then justice will dwell in the wilderness and righteousness will abide in the fertile field. There can be some significant environmental benefit to the the presence of Jesus Christ on this earth. The curse of Noah is undone. The judgment of the flood is revoked. All right, there will be peace among the animals again. The animals lose their fear of mankind. Lifespan reverts back to the multi-century lifespan they had before the flood. The work of righteousness will be peace and the service of righteousness, quietness and confidence forever. Then my people will live in a peaceful habitation and in secure dwellings and in undisturbed resting places. That day will come, but it won't come until Jesus Christ returns and conquers and it won't come until the Holy Spirit is poured forth on all mankind. 
In the meantime, the Jewish people are going to be desperate. They're going to sign bad treaties. They're going to even compromise with Antichrist himself, pathetically. It will hail when the forest comes down and the city will be utterly laid low. How blessed will you be, you who sow beside all waters, who let out freely the ox and the donkey. All right. Boy, there's a lot more we've got to deal with. Understand the promise of the Holy Spirit. It's spoken of many times in the Old Testament. It is a study that is well worth doing. It is a study not only for the sake of the prophecy related to Israel, I think it's highly useful to then put our Christianity in perspective and understand where uh, Pentecostalism is off track, understand how Pentecost was not fulfillment of Joel 2.28. It was not fulfillment of Ezekiel 39. It was not fulfillment of any of these Isaiah passages. It was not fulfillment of Zechariah 12.10. And Peter never said that it was. In Acts chapter 2, when the Holy Spirit came at Pentecost to start the church, what the apostle Peter was saying is, this is that. This is that, or this is like that. This is what was spoken of. This is not a fulfillment of Joel 2. That requires tribulation and and Jesus Christ coming in a second advent. And so folks that want to misapply Acts chapter 2 and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. By the way, who got the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2? It wasn't the whole world. It was not all mankind. It was a select group of believers in the upper room of Jerusalem. And they were the only ones who received the Holy Spirit on May 24, 33 A.D., Pentecost Sunday of 33 A.D., all right? And then in the weeks and months and years following, the apostles would travel around the world. They would find believers. They would lead them into a church-age understanding, lay hands on them, and then, then they would receive the Holy Spirit. There are successive outpourings of the Holy Spirit, usually through the laying on of hands by the apostles throughout the book of Acts. And it certainly wasn't worldwide and global because no unbeliever received the Holy Spirit. To this day, no unbeliever has received the Holy Spirit. But the promise made in all these passages is that all flesh, all mankind, everything that breathes will have the Holy Spirit. That happens in the millennium when all the unbelievers are sent to hell. The millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ begins with 100% saved, 100% believers on this earth to start the millennium. And when every unbeliever is removed from this planet, the Holy Spirit will then come upon all mankind, as Joel 2.28 indicates. All right. How quickly can we flip? I like the sound of flipping pages. It's getting more and more rare these days. You got your tablets and screens and fingers on glass. just doesn't do it for me like flipping pages. But do you recall in Isaiah 11, the promise of the Spirit? The Spirit of the Lord will rest on Him. Jesus Christ will be a Spirit-indwelled, Spirit-controlled King of righteousness. The Spirit of the Lord will rest on Him. and That's our perfect righteous King right there. Comes back again in 44.3, Isaiah 44.3. Isaiah 44.3. But now listen, O Jacob, my servant, and Israel whom I have chosen, thus says the Lord who made you and formed you from the womb, who will help you. Do not fear, O Jacob, my servant, and you, Jeshurun, whom I have chosen. I love the name Jeshurun. This speaks of Israel and their prosperity, the Jewish people and their blessings. For I will pour out water on a thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour out my spirit on your offspring and my blessing on your descendants and they will spring up among the grass like poplars by streams of water this one will say i am the lord's and that one will call on the name of jacob and another will write on his hand belonging to the lord and will name israel's name with honor so much for the self-loathing jew right so much for those that try to live in the land but reject that jesus of nazareth is their christ that will not happen in the millennial kingdom and it comes with the pouring forth of the Holy Spirit. 
As for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord, my spirit which is upon you, and my words which I have put in your mouth shall not depart from your mouth, nor from the mouth of your offspring, nor from the mouth of your offspring's offspring, says the Lord, from now and forever. Israel will finally fulfill their stewardship responsibilities, spirit-filled, spirit-indwelled, speaking prophetically to the Gentile nations during the thousand-year reign of Christ on this earth. That's never been fulfilled. It will be in the millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ. Ezekiel 39.29. If I can get through these, we're done. Ezekiel 39.29. I will not hide my face from them any longer, for I will have poured out my spirit on the house of Israel, declares the Lord God. And that takes some context to back it up, but it's in their national restoration. Verse 27, when I bring them back from the peoples and gather them from the lands of their enemies. Now, there are Jewish people in the land today, but God has not regathered them from the four corners of the earth. And they are not there in humility accepting Jesus as their Christ. For the most part, they're there in unbelief. The Bible describes that as well. They're waiting to sign the covenant with Antichrist. Joel 2.28. This is the one that Peter quotes in Acts chapter 2. Daniel, Hosea, Joel. And just because Peter says this is that, people get confused and try to say, well, it's fulfilled in the church. No. Because it says it will come about after this. After what? The sun, moon, and stars turning to blood. All the wrath of God on the tribulational earth. The locust invasion of the great tribulation. That hadn't happened yet. It will come about after this, I will pour out my spirit on all mankind, and your sons and daughters will prophesy, your old men will dream dreams, your young men will see visions. Notice the difference? All of humanity gets the Holy Spirit, but it's only the Jewish people that have the prophetic office. It's only your sons and daughters that prophesy. Your young men will, will, uh, old men will dream dreams, young men will see visions. Ezekiel is a Jew, his people are the Jewish people. All of humanity gets the Holy Spirit, but it's the Jewish believers in the millennium that, that are spirit and dwell to minister to the Gentile believers during the millennium. Even on male and female servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days. There are bond servants in the millennium, slaves in the millennium. There will be Gentiles that will volunteer to be Jewish slaves in the millennium because that will allow them to live closer to Jesus Christ in Jerusalem. And it's preferable to living in whatever Gentile land they're from. They'll say, no, I want to be in Jerusalem. And they will volunteer to be his bondservants. All right. I will display wonders in the sky and on the earth. Blood, fire, columns of smoke. See, this is the kind of thing. The sun will be turned into darkness. The moon into blood. This is the kind of thing. And people get excited about it. They want to write books about blood moons and all the rest. Finally, Zechariah 12.10. I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication so they will look on me whom they have pierced. They've got to be repentant. They've got to accept as Lord the Christ whom they crucified. See, right now they're still waiting. Messiah is coming, Messiah is coming, Messiah is coming. And you want to talk to them about the, the Galilean carpenter? No, that wasn't him. That wasn't him. They reject Jesus as their Christ. But a day is coming they will look upon him whom they have pierced. And they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only begotten son. They're going to understand what they did and what it cost God the Father and Jesus Christ on that cross. And they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. In that day there will be a great mourning in Jerusalem. And it goes on. In fact, for some respects, the whole thousand-year reign is the time for Israel to mourn and repent and readjust to the Christ that they crucified. That's why it's only a thousand years long. Just a day. All right. That one is key. I mean, that one, how do you, how do you confuse the church age with that? How do you confuse Pentecost with that? Okay? No. Father, I thank you for your truth. I thank you for your faithfulness. I thank you for the Word of God. And Father, we're going so fast through all of these chapters. 
I pray that you would use this format, that you would bless your children, that we would glean what we glean and understand that there's just so much more to go. I thank you for the breadth of Scripture that we have in this study. I thank you for the 9.30 hour. I thank you for Wednesday night. I thank you for the other classes that go slower. They, we go into more depth. We exegete the text. We, we pull out the, all the details. So, Father, uh, in each way we learn, and we thank you for it all. We thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, we will dismiss with our closing hymn. The-